Good morning. Uh, so we're, I'm just continuing my occasional series through the book of Exodus. And uh, this morning we'll look from chapter 418 to 77. So if you could keep your Bibles open and uh, you'll need to follow it, that would be uh, great. I'll just pray for us. Uh, Father, we thank you that these are your words, uh, that you reveal yourself in them. Uh, We pray this morning that we would be those who more wholeheartedly believe your words and who uh, know that you are the God who saves uh, your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. There's a social theory around at the moment that uh, the reason lifestyle programs on TV that include gardening and cooking and all that are so popular is because in a world that's becoming uh, far less secure, people just want to hide away in their backyards and kitchens. See, the home is a place of uh, rest and protection in some ways. And in many ways, that's fine. It's uh, great if our home can be places of rest and safety and enjoyment. But... To give that too much focus is quite deceiving, isn't it? Because it creates ideals in our minds that will not be satisfied. It's a precarious safety that cannot last forever. It's an insubstantial and very temporary type of rest. But of course, in absolute contrast to that, is what the Israelites are going through here in Egypt. See, they have no such illusions about the reality of a world that opposes God. They know that without God, their future is hopeless. So let's uh, just work through how Israel respond to God's promises to deliver them from something which they have no capacity whatsoever to deliver themselves. But uh, what we need to remember and keep in mind and uh, looked at last time is that there's this inseparable link between the book of Genesis and Exodus. See, Exodus is a continuation and fulfilment of God's covenant with Abraham, which included many descendants, the land and blessing. In fact, the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch are very interwoven. And in this regard, we also saw a strong link to creation where Pharaoh was uh, opposing God's purposes for creation itself, which will now be focused through Israel, God's purposes that humanity should rule his creation under his rule and live together in loving relationships. Now that plan will be expressed through Israel in the promised land. The problem, of course, is that even though Pharaoh's plans to stop Israel multiplying have failed, Israel are still in Egypt and they're still under the harsh and bitter service of the king of Egypt. But God is about to reveal his name, the name Yahweh, which means... And to reveal a name in Hebrew doesn't just mean 
to introduce yourself. It means to establish your reputation and character. And God is about to do this as he brings about the exodus. Israel's redemption from slavery. And what we see in verses uh, 18 to 31 of chapter 4 is Moses' return to Egypt to deliver Israel. But the first thing we must notice here in verses 18 to 20 is the irony of how he is going. So Moses, his job is to go back to Egypt to deliver the numerous nation of Israel from the most powerful man in the world at this time and look how he's going. He's got his family on a donkey and a staff in his hand. This is hardly a fearful military campaign, is it? But of course, the reason this isn't just madness and absolutely ridiculous is because, notice, it's the staff of God that's in his hand. Basically, we have here a humiliated and reluctant shepherd going back to Egypt with a staff to save Israel. And this is typical of God's actions, isn't it? It's not the might of armies and giftedness of people by which God saves, but his own power. This is why this morning we've heard prayers that God will save people. That someone struck up a conversation in a cafe and now they want to know about Jesus. See, it's in human weakness that we see God's power and wisdom to save. And we need to keep relearning that, don't we? We need to just get out there with the word of God because it's by his own power that he saves people. This situation is just stupid in a worldly sense. To go back, this is like trying to rescue everyone from America. (laughs) Only God can do it. And verses 21 to 23 are important for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it introduces the idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart in spite of the wonders of God that Moses will do. And literally what this says is Pharaoh's heart will be strengthened. But this is in deliberate contrast, if you quickly flicked back to chapter 3, verse 19, it says God's hand is, is to save is strong. So Pharaoh's heart is strong, God's hand is strong, who is going to win? Remember, this is a conflict. Pharaoh has picked a fight with the true and living God. And some people are troubled by the fact that it is God who hardens or strengthens Pharaoh's heart. And what adds to this is the difficulty that in other places later on it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart and sometimes it just says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And the reason for this, it's not that the Bible's confused, 
It's that it wants to teach us that God is sovereign and human beings are responsible for their actions. So Pharaoh is totally responsible for his own actions in opposing God and his purposes. And specifically here, opposing God's purposes for Israel through which God will continue his purposes for creation. But it is God's plan that Pharaoh oppose him. God never does evil himself in any way, but we must remember he is in charge of evil for his own ends. He governs human wickedness to achieve his purposes and the ultimate expression of that, of course, is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Judas is responsible for betraying Jesus and Jesus himself said, better that that man never have been born. But at the same time, it was God's determined purpose that Jesus be put to death and crucified. See, God is sovereign over human wickedness, but never himself does evil. And the reason why it will happen like this, verses 22 to 23, is that by this God will demonstrate that Israel is his firstborn son. That anyone opposing God's purposes for creation will lose in the end. And this issue of firstborn son is important. It's not just saying that Israel is loved by God as a son. Firstborn son is also an issue of status and inheritance in the ancient world. A firstborn son inherits the privileges and responsibilities and status of the father. I've been trying to convince uh, my parents that this should continue to apply. But Abraham's descendants are God's son, God's firstborn son. You cannot enslave his son and expect no consequence. See, the consequence will be that Pharaoh's firstborn son will die. And in verse 23, we see this word serve again. God's son is to serve God. Not be in the harsh service of another so-called king or God. But then we come to this strange incident, verses 24 to 26, where God is angry with Moses, or it could be Moses' son. All the Hebrew text says is him. The text just says God was angry with him. So it's not completely certain if God is angry with Moses or with Moses' son. But probably it's Moses' son because we're going from a threat against Pharaoh's firstborn son to now a threat to kill Moses' firstborn son. And the reason is that Moses hasn't even circumcised his own firstborn son, presumably because of his wife. 
And why is this important? Well, it's important because Moses will be as God to Pharaoh, but he hasn't even circumcised his firstborn son according to the covenant with Abraham. He hasn't even fully identified as a Hebrew. But what this teaches us is that Moses might be safe from Pharaoh because of God's protection and because the Pharaoh that wanted to kill him has died. But God is not safe for any sinner, including Moses. C.S. Lewis expresses this well in his Narnia books by using the phrase, Aslan is not a tame lion. At one point, the children in his story, the Narnia story, say, a lion? Is he safe? And the response is, of course not. He's a lion. Is God safe? Well, why would we think he is for sinful people? This is the whole point of Exodus. How can unholy people live in proximity to the holy, one true and living God? Of course God is not safe for sinful people. That's the whole point. So then Moses and Aaron get the elders of Israel together and do the signs that God gave Moses the power to do. So the staff turned to a snake, his hand became leprous. And and notice verse 27 to 31. And Israel believed and bowed down to worship God. Now that all sounds great, doesn't it, if we're reading this for the first time? (laughs) Yes, that's exactly right. That's the right response to God who's about to deliver you. But then what we see, which is typical throughout the Bible, is that people, they they believe upon seeing the signs, but then at the first obstacle, quickly turn back to unbelief. Even when Jesus came, according to John 2, people believed in him because of the many signs that he did. But when he wasn't what they were expecting... They turned away. Those same people were in the crowd shouting, crucify him. This is not our king. And Jesus, at the end of John 2, it says he wouldn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in people. See, Jesus had read Exodus properly. He knew what Israel were like. He knows what humanity is like. And particularly he read the next section, chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 13. It describes how Moses goes back to Pharaoh's house, makes the situation worse, and straight away the people doubted and complained and failed to see that what was happening would result in greater glory. And what, so what we see in chapter 5 is the beginning 
of this confrontation between Moses and Aaron as God's ambassadors and Pharaoh. So straight away, 5-1, they say, let my people go. And Pharaoh asked the very pregnant question, and it's important we get this, Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? I don't know Yahweh. Indeed. (laughs) Because remember, the point of Exodus is that God is going to establish his name. God is going to make himself known by the Exodus. Basically, Pharaoh is about to find out who Yahweh is. Because the book of Exodus is all about making the name or character and reputation of Yahweh known, not just to Israel, but to the nations. And Pharaoh demonstrates that he doesn't know Yahweh by increasing their burdens in building in verses 5 to 19. See, they were no longer given straw to make bricks but had to go and find their own but still make the same number of bricks. And this is expressed in a significant way in verse 5. Look what Pharaoh says in verse 5. You are making people rest from their burdens. Rest is the word Sabbath here. You are making people Sabbath from their burdens. Remember back to Genesis 2, what was God's purpose for creation? Sabbath rest. Pharaoh will not give the people Sabbath will not give the people rest. This is why the promised land is often described as God's rest. It's a place where they're not burdened by being enslaved. It's a place where they can live under the rule of the true and living God. It's a new Eden. And Pharaoh will not achieve that for creation. Kim Jong-un will not achieve that for creation. Donald Trump will not achieve that for creation. And any other person who opposes God will not achieve that for creation. Not only is Pharaoh opposing God by seeking to stop his creation purposes being worked out through Israel... Look what he does in verse 9. He is calling the words of God lying words. And we've seen this before, haven't we? The serpent said to the woman, did God really say? And then went on to say, you will not surely die. Pharaoh here is the instrument of Satan to undo God's intention for creation. Pharaoh's telling Israel, you've got to stop believe lying words, the lying words of Yahweh. And this is the choice every person faces, isn't it? God has spoken a truthful word, a reliable word, which continues to... Uh, be fulfilled 
and come about. And as believers, we believe it. Or we believe anyone who says God's words are lying words. And our culture obviously does that slightly different to Pharaoh, but that's what our culture wants to say on the whole too, isn't it? Stop believing lying words. And the Israelites themselves at this point can't see otherwise. They see themselves, look verse 15, verses 20 to 23, not as Yahweh's firstborn son, but as in the service of Pharaoh. So verse 15, the Israelites say to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? They're living like Pharaoh's slaves, not God's firstborn son. And the people say to Moses, may the Lord judge you. And then Moses says to God, why did you send me here? All you've done is make the situation worse. And at many times, many of us think like this. See, we live under this false expectation that trusting God will be easy in this world that opposes God. Not sure where we get that expectation from. And that if something is God's will, then it must go smoothly and easily. But already in the Bible, and this is only part way into the second book, we see that this is not the case at all. God's will is in fact very difficult in this world. Because it is in opposition to the world. It's a conflict. There will be people in power who believe that God's words are lying words and people who oppose God's purposes for creation. See, our lives will not always be easier because of the gospel in the short term. So what we see in chapter 6, verses 1 to 13, is God reassuring Moses that he will indeed bring about what he said he would, that this is not over yet. And But there seems to be a problem, chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, because in actual fact the patriarchs in Genesis did refer to God by the name Yahweh. So in what sense did the patriarchs not know God as Yahweh? But this is where we need to remember again that knowing God's name isn't just knowing a way of addressing him. It's about the reputation and character that are associated with that name. That's why the next few verses talk about the covenant that he made with Abraham. But Abraham, Abraham, though, never saw what God would do to bring about the saving of his descendants from Egypt. In this act of saving Israel from Egypt, 
Yahweh will make himself known. He will be fill that name with meaning when he delivers Israel. And we see some important words in here, like verses, verse 6, verse 7, deliver, redeem from slavery. I will take you to be my people. You will be, uh, I will be your God. See, they shall know that he is Yahweh and what that means. They will know what sort of God he is by what he does. And words like redeem, deliver from slavery and being by uh, God's people are covenant words. And they find their ultimate significance in Jesus. We can know God and his reputation and character in a fully expressed way because of what he's done through Jesus. He is indeed the God who saves those who cry out to him. He is indeed the God who saves through human weakness. And what we see, verse chapter 6, verses 14 to 30, seems quite odd. Uh, we didn't read it, but what it is, it's another... It's the start of another genealogy. So it mentions Reuben and Simeon, then it spends a lot of time on Levi and stops. Wasn't there 12 sons of Jacob? And the strange thing is we've already had a genealogy back in chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, where all 12 sons are mentioned. So why have another one here that stops at Levi? Well, the reason seems to be, verses 26 and 7, that it wants to spotlight Moses and Aaron as Levites. Because this anticipates the importance of Levites as priests later on in Exodus. But in this situation, it's a way of saying also to the people reading this and to Israel, Moses and Aaron are really important in God's plan. And we see this particularly chapter 7 verse 1. This is amazing, isn't it? Look at that. It says, Moses will be as God to Pharaoh. Moses will so represent God by what he does that it will be to Pharaoh as though Moses himself is God. And Aaron will be the prophet of God. This plants in our mind early on in the scriptures the idea that God uses a mediator to bring judgment and to deliver his people. So it's important as we are to finish up to just quickly important note to follow a couple of these ideas through the scriptures. And the idea that Israel is God's firstborn son is important. Later on in history, what we'll find is that the king of Israel in a very particular 
expression of Israel's sonship is known as the Son of God. So David is known as the Son of God and one of his sons will always sit on the throne of Israel. In a way, it expresses the fact that to bear God's image is to be royal. Adam and Eve are presented to us in Genesis as the king and queen of Eden. But what we find is that Israel failed to be the true son. Just as Adam and Eve failed to be rulers under God's rule. See, it would be 1,500 years after the Exodus that one who lived up to true sonship would be born, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's ultimate expression, God's ultimate son. But when he did come and did signs, people's belief was fickle and lacked depth of trust in the name of God. They didn't see in Jesus the ultimate expression of God's reputation and character. They didn't see in Jesus the pattern of operation established by the Exodus. They didn't see that in the depths of human weakness, God exerted his powerful saving hand. See, to be sons and daughters of God requires identification with the true son. And we are not to be unbelieving sons. Not to treat God's words as lying words. If we want to live in a restored creation, it won't happen by the pharaohs of the world it will happen by being associated with God's Son. And to finish, let's uh, quickly flick to Matthew eleven twenty-five to 30. Which says this, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The context here is important. Immediately following this, these verses that I read, is a dispute about the Sabbath. See, Pharaoh won't give people Sabbath or rest. The law won't give people Sabbath or rest. 
If we want rest, which is God's ultimate intention for creation, we must be identified with the Son. We must take his yoke upon us. See, if we're doubting and struggling and suffering under the weight of living in a world enslaved to sin, then we're being encouraged here to wait and see what God will do. Call out to him to save and redeem. He's the God who turns difficulty into glory. He's the God who bestows sonship on those under the yoke of enslavement to sin. So don't try to find ultimate rest in your backyard or your study or your shed. The rest we desire and need is in being yoked to Jesus and following him and serving others in pointing them to him. See, for Israel, they were unbelieving and crushed by the harshness of their slavery. Our danger, though, is thinking that we can manufacture our own rest by the great lifestyle options available to us here. But we need to seriously consider, don't we, that if everything was taken away from us, do we still believe that we have all things through the Son? So let me just uh, pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Exodus by which you reveal reveal the name Yahweh and establish your own reputation and character. That you are the God who is faithful to your promises and you will achieve them. Help us to be those who are not sucked in by the world, who call your words lying words, but who believe your words who are trusting you for the ultimate outcomes that you have promised. Help us to be more wholeheartedly uh, following the Lord Jesus Christ, to be yoked to him and to uh, leave behind our burden of sin and our inability to be righteous by our own merit, but to look to Jesus who achieved such glorious salvation. Uh, We thank you that you are the God who delivers your people. May we be those who continue to persevere in our believing and trusting in your words of salvation. And we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.